Welcome to In The News, Conversations Around Security, a new and dynamic podcast where we dissect the day's headlines through the critical lens of security risk management and where awareness meets analysis. Join us on the 1st and 15th of each month as we bring you a fresh episode packed with informative debates, expert analysis, and thought-provoking insights offering a nuanced perspective on the stories that shape our world. So buckle up and join us for a look at what's in the news, conversations around security. Hello, folks, and thanks for joining us for part two of our two-part series on Hamas with special guest Phil Gursky, formerly of CSIS, and now the president and uh, owner of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. And without uh, much further ado, let's get into the part two. But when your own government seems to ignore intelligence and isn't poning up, we, we heard the Trudeau government announce it has no intention of getting the NATO 2% standard standard for, for defense spending. People begin to wonder, is Canada in for a free ride? Is it not, is that pulling its weight? So it does have serious implications um, for and, Canada. You know, if you were a conspiracy-minded thinker, and I'm far from that, but you, you can't help but think that these guys are either completely stupid or they're working for the bad guy. I mean, the Pollyanna world that some of our politicians live in, okay, and the fact that they refuse to accept the reality of what we see every night on TV is troubling. It's downright scary. I, I, you use the word Pollyanna. So I would agree with that, Luke. I think we've got people who see the world as they want to see it. Um, the world's a nasty place. It always has been, and it always will be. And if you don't accept that because it doesn't fit with your worldview or you prefer things to be better, I mean, didn't Trudeau talk about Canada being the first the world's so first post post nation state yeah. or something yeah. whatever the hell that's supposed to mean i have no idea um but to get back uh, brian to your your question on the palestinians uh, yeah it does worry me so uh, you know uh, the way that it works what worked when i was at CSIS, CSIS has a role in security screening for immigrants immigrants from certain parts of the world and that's not you know that's not mince words here we're talking about the middle east we're talking about parts of asia CSIS has the authority to look into people's backgrounds to determine if, in fact, there's something there which would preclude them being good Canadian citizens. The problem is CSIS doesn't make the decision. They pass their information on to Citizenship Immigration Canada, who make the decision. They can, And again, in the lack of an intelligence culture, they can ignore the CSIS intelligence. So we, we've had Islamist terrorists come into our country. And we've tried to deport them, and they're here 25 years later. They're still here. And they're suing us for 10.5 million, which seems to be, by the way, the, the going rate for suing the yeah. government is 10.5 million. Um, so again, we, we, we've got intelligence agencies doing their best to warn the government, to provide information, to make better decisions. And that intelligence doesn't go anywhere in many cases. And we end up with the problems that we're going to have. I just wanted to, to clarify one thing there, Phil, because oftentimes we, we talk about uh, people coming into the country and we lump them into the same group. Is it fair to say like immigrants are not refugees, which is, I think, what we're really looking at right with with the current situation it's refugees so there's a different dynamic there i don't think they're necessarily coming here to be part of the fabric and, and contribute to in terms of work and and, and then you like they, they don't really have a choice they're they're escaping their situation does CSIS um change the way they do those background checks for refugees versus an immigrant are they even involved with immigrants is that a separate channel that I don't know. I, I know the security screening branch is the largest operational branch that CSIS has. And the security screening branch looks at things like people see, seeking uh, security clearances here in Canada, as well as certain immigrants. I don't know that we make a distinction between immigrants and refugees. That's a really good question. Um, but to me, it, it doesn't matter. If you're coming to Canada from an area of the world that is known to be one where extremism happens on a regular basis, 
any country, any sane country, any wise country would want to do a, a very detailed background check to ensure that the people who come and let, let's face it, 99.9% .9 will come here for all the right reasons. They're fleeing war, they're fleeing famine, they're fleeing persecution, whatever. And Canada is friendly to immigration. I personally am pro-immigration. I mean, shit, all of us are, are, the, are the sons or grandsons of immigrants, right? I'm, I'm third generation Eastern European Canadian, okay? So for me to be anti-immigrant would be would, would be counterintuitive. I mean, my grandparents couldn't have come here during the First World War. But not all immigrants come here for the right reasons. And, and I think that's why you have a, a security service that does the screening that it does. So, you know, saying that, that people should be put through a process is not the same as someone who says, well, you're just being a racist or anti-immigrant. No, you're doing your due diligence as a security service to determine that, to make sure that people with agendas or people with, with certain ideologies that are inimical to Canada's interests are not allowed to come to the country. So here's the reality. There's a shit show going on in the Middle East right now. There's real violence. There's real carnage happening. You talked about terrorism threats in the West, in Europe, places like that. Canada's not immune. Uh, Hamas, let me ask you, Hamas operates in Canada? I have no doubt that they do, uh, certainly from a financing perspective. Let's also remind your listeners that it was a week ago that Ottawa, the RCMP in Ottawa, arrested a couple of uh, young offenders planning an act of terrorism somewhere in Ottawa. Now, interestingly, uh, the news didn't mention the nature of the violence, but I did a bit of digging myself. And, and let's put it this way, guys. These sure shit weren't uh, right-wing terrorists or lefties. These are Islamist extremists. Now, where they linked to ISIS, because we have a lot of ISIS-inspired people around the world still. Uh, the Brits just made another arrest about an ISIS-inspired person in the UK just the other day. Or were they Hamas-linked or sympathetic? I have no idea. But... You know, we, we have people that the RCMP has arrested out west in Calgary. We've had people in Ottawa arrested uh, who are tied to this Islamist extremist ideology. And they were going to target Jewish institutions. Now, to me, that suggests these are people who want to seek revenge for what's happening in Gaza by attacking what they see to be the problem, i.e. synagogues or Jewish centers, somehow making the equation that, you know, the state of Israel and a Jewish synagogue in Ottawa are one and the same. I don't know how you get there personally, because lots of Jewish Canadians are very angry at what Israel is doing in the West Bank as well. But these people, don't, you know, they're not rocket scientists, right? They don't have two neurons to rub together. They just see an easy target. So yes, Hamas has a presence here in Canada. Of that, I have no doubt. So again, bring back the nexus to security. As a security practitioner, I'm faced with Luke and my colleagues are faced with how do we manage these protests? How do we manage the violence that we're seeing at the Eaton Center and other yeah. big public uh, private venues? It's been noticeable the way the two sides demonstrate are different. Yeah. There's a lot of disruption on the pro-Palestinian pro side. And it's a bit of a love it on the Israeli side. Yeah. Is that a cultural thing or is that being pushed somehow by uh, yeah. that, entities? entities? It's a great question. Look, you know, we all agree that under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you have a right to protest. You have a right to register your political opinion. You have your right to disagree with the government or any other government for that matter. But the protests have to be peaceful. Uh, they can't engage in violence. They can't engage in intimidation. They can't threaten anybody. And what we're certainly seeing on the Palestinian side are people who either A, do not see Hamas as a terrorist organization, or are simply so angry and saddened by what they see happening in Gaza that they, 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 they lose their shit. Now, and I get that, right? Again, you can't see that footage and not become emotionally involved in it, whether you're Palestinian or not. But, you know, we have protests in Toronto where people are threatening police officers. Uh, and nothing's done about it. Now, I mean, the police are in a difficult situation here, right? If they were to um, 
make efforts to arrest somebody who is threatening a police officer. Can you imagine the ensuing sit, shit show when everybody else starts kicking up on the police as well? So, I mean, this is not a, a happy day for the for Toronto police services either. Um, I, I don't know that it's a cultural thing. I just, I, I just find now that because public opinion has swayed so heavily in favor of what of the Palestinians in Gaza, that as a consequence, that's where the demonstrations are going. And and you and people have forgotten what happened on October 7th. As I keep reminding everybody, Israel would not be in Gaza had it not been for October the 7th. They're not there for shits and giggles. They're not there because they want to be. They got out in 2005 because they realized there was no point in being there anymore. People are, 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 are ignoring, um, deliberately ignoring why this war is taking place in Gaza. And it's taking place because Hamas killed 1,200 people. And as you said, Luke, um, you know, took 240 people hostage or so. That's the calculus you have to bring this back to. And if you don't do that, you're being dishonest and you're simply hiding the facts. And I, I think the scary thing is that we have a lot of people are getting frustrated. You talked about the uh, the way the police are handling it. And, and I understand they're in, between a rock and a hard place. I understand yeah. that they've got to say, look, you've broken a law, but if we arrest you now, we're going to make a bad situation worse. We'll come for you later. I get that. But people are getting frustrated. What I'm seeing, you know, on social media uh, people that were sort of centrist, there's this move now to the right. There's this anti-immigrant uh, thing. There's this, yeah. it is ridiculous. And I'm just sort of scared that we're starting down a path that we will not easily come back out of. That, that's a really good point. And, and you raised something which I think a lot of people have expressed concern about over the past four or five years. And that's what I would call the, the, the re-rise of the far right. Now look at, you know, the far right in Canada, when I worked at CSIS and I worked there until 2015, the far right couldn't organize a piss up in a bar. This is why CSIS was on the on the very on the verge uh, of actually downing its far right investigative team. There was nothing to look at. There was nobody that of any concern. That obviously has changed. But again, I would caution: jihadis still carry out ninety nine point nine percent attacks around the world, whether it's Hamas or ISIS or Al Qaeda or Al Shabaab, whatever kind of thing. But you're right, Brian. There has been, I think, a concomitant rise uh, in in anti immigrant feeling. Um, partly because we see people like uh, Adil Sharkawi in Montreal, whom we tried to deport back in 2002, who, you know, got he got his citizenship, despite the fact that CSIS had told courts that had, you know, reliable intelligence that he was an Islamist extremist. Now he's spouting hate from a mosque in Montreal, calling for the destruction of Israel. We gave him his citizenship. He's suing us for 27.5 million, so more than 10.5 million in this case. And people have become frustrated. People have become frustrated that people are basically being allowed in the country and engaged in activities. And I'm not going to say they're un-Canadian because we, we can differ on what Canadian means. But we can certainly agree that people who are espousing violence in our in our lands uh, against people here in Canada or abroad, that's not what Canada stands for. And when, when they see these demonstrations taking place, and it's, and you're also seeing a really bizarre marriage between the far left and, 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 and the Hamas mm -hmm. supporters. You know, yes. you know, what is Greta Thunberg and in, in, in Norway calling for an independent Palestine? I mean, it's a really bizarre. And I, I wrote a column on this recently. You know, here the, these far left groups see, see Hamas as these resistance fighters. Hamas are the most misogynist group. All Islamist extremist groups are misogynist. They care about the environment. Yeah, yeah apparently. Yeah. But I mean, have you heard the, the, the accounts of rape that Hamas yeah. engaged in October the 7th? And yet people are, you know, no pun intended, jumping into bed with them kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then people are reacting. And, and I think it's part and parcel. Um, in in a way, it's, it's kind of a reflection of sort of the anti-woke, anti-cancer culture that you're seeing rise of late. People are sick and tired of being told what to do, how to think. 
changing street names, uh, changing Young and Dundas Square to something in Ghanaian. Uh, it, it goes on and on and on. And I, and I think average Canadians, and I, I would say average centrist Canadians, Brian, not necessarily right-wing Canadians, because I myself, I consider myself, myself a centrist, are just fed up. Yeah. They're fed up with this dialogue. They're fed up with this narrative uh, and, and being told that, you know, you're because of who you are, um, you're by definition systemically racist because I happen to be a white guy, you know, and, and I happen to be male. No, sorry, Luke, I just want to jump in very quickly and briefly. Yeah. If you look at history, if you look at the rise of uh, totalitarian regimes in the 20th century, if you look at how Hitler came to power, if you look at uh, Mussolini, if you look at fascist regimes, I'm just fearful that we're going on that trajectory and the mass hysteria is going to be hard to come back from. But Luke, I stole your thoughts. No, it's it's actually that's the, the same road I was gonna I was gonna go down with uh, with Phil. What I'm seeing, what I what I'm what I'm worried about really is that you see a conflating of different interests and using that Gaza incident and the war to stimulate and and make these these um, interests come together and and basically. Uh, take it into another direction and what that looks like i don't know but it's looking pretty ugly in europe right now in terms of it's not just yeah. about gaza it's about islamicism against yeah. the catholics and all and it's a lot yeah. bigger discussion than i think we're 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 really being led on to believe right. certainly in canada our press really doesn't talk about that it talks just about gaza and israel i'm actually cautiously optimistic on that front guys um you know there's been all these predictions about a, a massive rise in the far right and violence and i'm not seeing it i i mean I keep track of terrorism on a daily basis, and I'm not seeing the types of attacks that people have said are inevitable. Yes, there have been instances. You saw what happened in Christchurch. You saw what happened in Quebec City in 2017. You know, it. we're not seeing the, the volume. We're not seeing the, the levels that people have been predicting for quite some time. And yes, there are some problematic right-wing governments. We have uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who's a real asshole. Um, we have Georgia Maloney in, in Italy, but she's a lot less uh, strident than people mm -hmm. thought she would be when she became the prime minister of Italy. Uh, Herod Wilders was just elected uh, the top oh. party in the Netherlands. Yeah. He's a real piece of work. But I, I just, you know, maybe I'm being naive, but I, right now I don't see the, the ingredients necessary to lead to extreme, as you call it, Brian, sort of the rise of fascism uh, in far right groups uh, that we saw in the 20s and 30s arise in Europe. Um, I, I hope I'm right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll continue to monitor this very carefully as time goes on. And, and you know, if it does start to change, I'll start, sort of take note of it. But it's not there yet. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, you know, politics is penetrated. We're going to get a right-wing government in Canada probably in 2025, given the way the polls are showing right now. This government ran out of ideas a long time, a long time ago. And whatever you think of Trudeau, I don't really care. All governments have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. uh, and this government's shelf life ended years ago. Um, I think Canadians will vote for change, and that change will likely be, be the Conservative Party under Pierre Pelliot. What he stands for is what he stands for. What kind of government he rules. You know, guys, historically, governments always tend to move to the centre anyhow, because that's where the, that's where they have to govern from. Um, yeah. a, a lot of their ideas, being as Pollyannish as they might be, they don't fly. They don't work. And so you've got to basically change in order to survive kind of thing. So um, I don't lose sleep over the far right. Again, um, you know, I, I'm, I track terrorism, as I said, and I'm just not seeing it just yet. And um, I, 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 I hope it continues that way. But do you see, like, some of the decisions that that our government's made, it's obviously stemmed some of those fires on, on both sides of the argument. And my, my question would be, like, doesn't hesitation or unclear directives from a government yeah. sort of encourage 
people who who might sympathize with certain causes here to say, hey, these guys, I mean, they, they're not really calling the Jews that bad. They're or or they're really bad. It's not amassing yeah. all that bad. Maybe I should step yeah. up and do something. I, I think you're right. I mean, this government has um, um, said it wants a five hundred thousand per year immigrant um, goal to achieve. That's a lot of people. And you know, again, I'm I'm definitely pro immigration, but who's going to screen those five hundred thousand people? And and where are we going to take them from? And yeah, you know, people. Canada is obviously look at the Canada of 2023 is not the Canada of 1960 when I was born. It was a much more white society back then. All of my friends were either Dutch immigrants or Portuguese or Italian, uh, or in my case, Eastern European. They were all pretty well the same kind of thing, right? That's obviously changed over the past 60 odd years. And some would say that's a good change, and some would say it's bad, and some would say it's it's neutral kind of thing. But yeah, I, I do worry that when you have a government that gives mixed messages on that thing, that it does encourage a polarization of society, both on the left mm-hmm. and on the right. Uh, and that's never a good thing. You want a government to bring people together, not, not, not split people apart. So, you know, to bring this back, we were talking sort of at a strategic level, geopolitical level, to bring it back to day-to-day in Toronto as a security consultant, security practitioner, there's very little that... I can tell my clients they can do other than guns, guards, and gates, but we're just uh, along for the ride, the private sector, the Eaton yeah. Center, and the run the path and run all the sport venues and the theaters. We we just have to rely on uh, uh, our political leaders to do the right thing. And whatever they do, we have to clean up the mess. Would you agree, Phil? Or are there things that we could be doing that we're not? We obviously want an open and free society. Like I said, we want people to feel safe and they're going to public venues. We don't want, you know, bomb scares. We don't want people with guns going through our malls, et cetera. We want to be able to shop at the Eaton Center without having to go through a, a thousand or 10,000 strong protests in favor of Palestine and Hamas. Uh, as a Canadian, I have that right to not have someone push me around or shove a megaphone in my face and start yelling at me kind of thing. Uh, there must be laws or, by, you know, municipal bylaws on sizes of crowds and when they can gather and for how long they can gather. But again, and we talked about it before, Brian, the problem is, is that, you know, once these people show up, you've got an immediate problem. Mm -hmm. Even if that particular crowd is illegal under some kind of bylaw, are you going to try and make the effort to disperse it when when tensions are high and emotions are boiling over? Not really. So I, I don't know what it is we can actually do. But yeah, the mixed messages from the government are not helping. I mean, you know. Hamas thanked the Trudeau government for calling for a ceasefire. Yeah, yes. And I'm, I'm thinking that was a shitty day in Liberal cabinet when a listed terrorist entity says, by the way, Mr. Trudeau, thank you for your support. And you notice how quickly the Liberals backtracked day on that one. They were, they couldn't move, you know, more. I've never seen a government move that quickly to dis- distance themselves from getting a thank you card from, from the leader of Hamas. But I, I do think that private security agencies are placed in a, a very difficult position because A, uh, they've got limited use of force uh, within their, you know, their, their, their structures. Uh, and they don't want to make matters worse. But, you know, if the average Canadian can't can't go to a Zara store or can't go to the Eaton Centre and shop for fear they're not going to get through the door or, I mean, can you imagine you, you've got your kids or your grandkids in tow mm-hmm. and you're hearing these people yelling and swearing and all kinds of stuff? And what's this doing to business? Businesses like, that are fearful to open because, you know, they might get swarmed. And that's yeah. basically two guys, you, you know, Criminal elements are going to take advantage of this as well. I think it was a huge Palestinian demonstration at the Eden Center. You don't think your average, you know, crook is going to, you know, try to do some shoplifting or whatever kind of thing? Absolutely. They're going to, they're going to see what's happening and say, hey, that, that's an opportunity for me at the same time. 
I thought of the, uh, it, it reminds me of this poor, uh, well, it just happened on the weekend in Dundas Square with the Canadian police officer with the Canadian flag being flown in his face. And maybe, you know, he could have handled it a little better. But to me, it was just everything that's ugly about the situation where, you know, to your point, he doesn't want to get involved. That guy with the Canadian flag is just, I mean, he's agitating, even though I'm a yeah. Canadian, you wanted to support it. You know what yeah. he's there for? He's to agitate the crowd. And yeah. the officer is trying to tell me, you know, like, take it somewhere else. We don't need that yeah. stuff here. But it looks like, well, Canada's sort of taking secondary precedence over, you know, their interests. And, and it's totally bad for, for the media and, and the looks it gives to the Canadians. So I, I totally empathize with, with, the, yeah. with the position that police are put in. Absolutely. And yeah, again, your job is not to let things to escalate. But, you know, again, at, at what point do we start taking back our public spaces? Well, um, it, it, you know, no good. No, no. I was gonna say I don't get out a lot, right? I mean, I don't. I'm at that point now. I'm not big into shopping anyhow, and you know, I, I live in a small village now. I don't go to Ottawa that often, and you know, I, I don't want to be in crowds anyhow. But I mean, like I said, you think of the average family going out for dinner one night or something, or to a McDonald's in a mall, and to have to, you know, witness this kind of thing. I mean, of course, people are getting angry, uh, and and the unfortunate part is that a very very small number of people will get angry. We'll do something about it. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, using extreme violence and killing somebody, but they're going to, you know, they're going to get their face in, in the faces of the demonstrators and they're going to provoke arguments and maybe, you know, provoke fisticuffs or whatever kind of thing, because people are just fed up and they're not going to take it anymore. It really is amazing, you know, that uh, I think what makes a democracy and our democracy's work is that people can express uh, their beliefs without fear of reprisal and demonstrate. And I'm amazed, not amazed, I'm really excited or proud when I see, you know, uh, there's a protest of some sort, be it a labor union or whatever, and they get away with so much because we want to give them the opportunity to, yeah. that's what our democracy, that's what a democracy is, and that's what Canada is. But the thing that a lot of people are having trouble understanding is the rights of the majority, they have rights also, they can go to the Eaton Centre and sit on yeah. Santa Claus lap, you know, like, our leaders are doing a terrible job sort of yeah. making sure that everyone's rights are being protected, not just the ones that talk the loudest. I think it's a good point. And, and the way that I've heard it expressed is it's all about votes. Yeah. So if a certain riding in Toronto is, I don't know, I'll make up something, you know, primarily Palestinian or primarily Jewish or primarily whatever kind of thing. Uh, let's face it, politicians are, 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 are smarmy bastards at the best of times. And they're going to do whatever is or do and say whatever is necessary to get votes in that area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why is it Canada doesn't use the word Sikh extremism? Because they know a shit ton of ridings in southwestern British Columbia and Surrey in Burnaby and parts of Toronto are heavily Sikh dominated. And if they start talking about Sikh terrorism, they won't get those votes from those people when they're coming elections. So they use they use weasel words to get around it kind of thing. You know, like South Asian terrorism. We're talking about fucking Laos or something. You know, I mean, you know, you, you got to call things what they are. But because politicians at the end of the day, all they want to do is get reelected. Um, they're not stupid. And they, and they do and say things that uh, are going to ensure they get they get back into office. And as a consequence, they don't take those brave stands. And I think you're seeing a government now that has failed miserably uh, in, in, in taking principled stands on these types of things. So basically, you're saying we're screwed. <laughs> but no, the, 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 the shining, I guess the, the silver lining here, guys, is that, you know, as I wrote in the, in the Peaceable Kingdom, if you take the broadest definition of terrorism possible, and I, I, obviously I, I focus on terrorism because that's what I did in counterterrorism. Um, we've had maybe 20 attacks in 155 years. So, you know, you, you, 20 attacks, that, that that's a good week in Somalia yes. or parts of, you know, the Sahel part of Africa. So I, I don't really worry about um, 
this escalating to the point where we're going to become like a failed state kind of thing. It's not to say we won't have more attacks. Of course we will, because that's just the nature of terrorism. But eventually this war will wind down in Gaza, probably much before Netanyahu wants it to, because of international and, let's face it, U.S. pressure as Israel's main ally. We'll go, go back to the status quo ante. Um, Hamas will not be destroyed. They'll gear up for you know more arms. They'll gear up for another attack. Maybe not on the scale of October the 7th, but whatever kind of thing. And like I said, we'll be having the same conversation a year from now or two years from now if we're all in the same business still, because it's going to be like, you know, what goes around comes around. It's like deja vu all over again, right? Um, but no, I tend to be more of an optimistic person. There, there's a great book that came out many years ago by a, a Canadian actually named Steven Pinker. Uh, he's, a, he's a linguist, so I... I was a linguist for years, but he's also more like a kind of like a philosopher. And he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. He looked at violence throughout human history. And of course, you know, it's hard to, to get statistics for 10,000 years ago. But when you look at kind of the general narrative about how people died over, over time, you had a one in 10 chance of dying violently in the Middle Ages. There were wars, there were, you know, there was no police, banditry, criminality. Right now, in countries like Canada, you have like a one in a gazillion chance of dying in violence. That's the message I want to take away from this is that as, mm -hmm. as angry as people are uh, and as emotional as they're getting over this, the vast majority of people aren't going to do anything stupid about it and act violently. So that's that's kind of allows me to sleep at night, I suppose, knowing that it's it's still going to be a fairly rare response to a, a very tenuous situation. That's sort of a good way to wrap this up, Luke, don't you think? Yeah, that's on a, a great, good on a good note. It, it is a, a good, good note. note. It's a it's a great uh, it's a great uh, way to sum it all up. And but uh, for for myself personally, I mean, I always uh, enjoy your uh, your your points of view, uh, Phil, whether with Thanks, talking sir. to us or on on TV, especially uh, you know trying to educate our media in terms of what's actually going on in, in in the world around us. It's not all bunnies and rainbows, certainly not in Canada, even though we might think that often. But I appreciate you coming on today and giving us your insights, um, your extensive experience speaks volumes to you know your perspective. And there's some uh, a lot of credibility behind that when, when you say well, something. Thanks. So I appreciate it. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Brian. Phil, you represent your craft really, really well. You speak well. You're really a, a smart guy. You're a fair guy. Uh, I love reading your uh, daily blog uh, uh, posts, uh, uh, almost, I think, daily. Uh, and you do great work. Can you just tell our listeners uh, where they can find it online? Because I think it's well worth the sure. read to subscribe. Well, thank, thanks, Luke and Brian, for the the, the feedback. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to know that the, the message is resonating with, with some people, and I don't, and I won't be getting hate mail from either of you two. At least not. <laughs> I hope not. Um, so the website is borealisthreatandrisk.com. That's where all the podcasts and blogs are. There's no subscription fee. It's all. It's all. Uh, it's all free of charge. And uh, I'll just add a teaser alert. I'm starting two new series. Uh, starting in January, they're probably going to be weekly or not bi-weekly. I'm going. I'm not going to give too many details right now, but they're going to be in-depth look, uh, in-depth looks at, at terrorism. Uh, again, uh, you know, use the term educate, Luke. I, that's what I'm trying to do. Is I don't have all the answers. Uh, you know, I spent 32 years in Intel and I had access to some incredibly sensitive information, which I try to understand and and and, and interpret for decision makers. But uh, there's a lot of data out there that's getting ignored. Uh, and, and, and that's what worries me is that people are simply refusing to acknowledge what's really happening. So these two new series are going to take a look at real data uh, and what its implications are for how we think about terrorism, what we do about terrorism and things like that. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm also, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, is at Borealis Saves, which is 
actually a, a bit of a takeoff on the fact that I'm a really shitty goaltender and pick up hockey. Um, but uh, I'm also on Facebook and on LinkedIn. But LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, more people that want to uh, reach out and uh, and have a chat about all things national security and public safety, I'd be happy to engage them. You know, and I must say, just before I end uh, my piece, is uh, sometime ago when we were talking, we talked about experts and expert witnesses in court and things like that. And I always like to call myself in the past before we had this discussion a security risk management expert. But if you're not calling yourself an expert, I can't call myself an expert. So if you ever change your mind, let me know, please. I, I will. The, the only reason I do that, guys, is that, I mean, the term is so overused. And I, yeah. I know when, I, when I see people in the media refer to themselves or being referred to as an expert, um, I, I kind of just cringe. So I, I ask people not to call me that. And I had a great line. Uh, I had a, a woman called Martha Crenshaw on my podcast about a month ago. She, she's been doing, she's an academic in the state. She's in Alabama. She was one of the first professors to learn to look at terrorism in the 1960s. Like she's been around forever. And she says, I don't know if you ever heard a man called Thomas Friedman, who's a New York Times reporter for many, many, many years. And in the wake of 9-11, he used to joke that if he ever uh, was watching the news and he and the and the uh, the news anchor said, and now for uh, a look on terrorism, we have experts so-and-so, Thomas Friedman said, at that point, I turned to the Golf Channel because he was sick and tired of hearing yet another expert wishing on something. So I'm sorry, Brian, that I, I precluded you calling yourself an expert. Call yourself whatever the hell you want. It's, it's a free country. I call but, all uh, kinds of things. Well, I'm sure you do. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Phil, for joining us. Yeah, My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And to our listeners, as always, please leave your comments, like and subscribe to our channel. Uh, we're happy to uh, answer those questions and move forward with uh, with more content, more guests like Phil uh, to bring it to you uh, well, in virtual reality. Um, but until next time, stay safe and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone.